All right, I'm Kevin Lewitt, joined by Andrew Page. We're from Fijian, and this is the Bioinformatics Lab podcast. And this week, we're going to kind of continue the conversation in discussing public health bioinformatics. Uh, I think something interesting perspective you and I can both bring to this are the regional differences, at least in our experiences in public health and how this approach of implementing bioinformatics um, has been performed in maybe the U.S. versus the U.K., and then even our understanding of, of some of the global perspective in, in large consortiums like phage and GMI and the like. And I can kind of start on my end from the U.S. perspective. You know, as I talked about last week, my experience started at the Virginia State Public Health Sciences, and this was a uh, public health laboratory. And this was in 2016. So this was kind of a unique time in the U.S., uh, pathogen genomics lore, as it were, in that this was, I think, maybe the first year, within the first year, maybe second, where public health laboratories were transitioning from traditional techniques like PFGE into whole genome sequencing. And at the state, data, Virginia was one of them. So there was no bioinformatics at the state level because they weren't generating the data until this year. So I actually got brought on as the first bioinformatics scientist in the state of Virginia. And I was really? one of only, yeah, yeah. It was an interesting wow, time. That's, so I got, that's impressive. It was uh, an incredible luck of the draw in the timing of my career. Cause you know, you're in the academic space. You're just so drawn into what's happening in the pathogen genomics. You're not really quite sure where the career is going. I didn't even really know much about public health until uh, my PI got tagged by the uh, Virginia State Public Health Lab. And then he started learning, oh, they're starting to implement this technology. And Virginia went so far as they put in a data internship program under Governor McAuliffe in that year of trying to attract academic talent to help them make sense of these types of data. And so that's how I got brought in into Virginia. It was like, hey, we're generating this innovative data. Uh, we need to make sense of it. No state really has the, the capabilities. We certainly don't. Let's try to bring in somebody fresh from academia in who can kind of give perspective. And that was my my intro into public health. So I have always had that luxury of the front row seat of watching what bioinformatics implementation looks like for uh, public health laboratories. And as I mentioned, I was in Virginia. And I think at that time, I was one of only four other state level bioinformatics scientists. So Joel Savinsky was one at Colorado, uh, Kelly Okasin in Utah, and Sean Wang in Minnesota. And there was, in the U.S., we have the federal government that everyone knows, you know, the CDC, FDA, USDA. But then, you know, we, we are a United States and that their states have their own local governments that have their own um, challenges in implementing technology from IT to infrastructure to workforce and all the like. So when we had challenges of bioinformatics implementation at the state level, it wasn't always obvious how the CDC could support us because we were so state specific. So the, the CDC didn't necessarily face the same challenges we did in Virginia. But what was actually really interesting is that when I found out about Joel and Kelly and Sean, the CDC, Heather Carlton actually put us in all in contact. We realized yeah. that our challenges were more alike as states uh, relative to federal challenges. So the progression across the U.S. in terms of harmonizing on best practices and figuring out what to do in terms of bioinformatics implementation at the state level started with the four of us communicating and figuring out, hey, what's happening in Utah? Let me tell you what's happening in Virginia. What are the challenges you're facing? What kind of tool are you building, et cetera? And we started this consortium 
state public health bioinformatics. And this was staff B. And this started with a four oh, months. Okay. Yes. Uh, I didn't know that's what it meant. I, I thought it was like staff aureus or something like that. We're aware of the of uh, the implications of using staff there for sure. Uh, and we throw the hard B for the bioinformatics. So um, yeah, and, and that was uh, something that we, we the community building. I'm, I'm always about the community building. And it was, it made it such a big difference that you weren't going it alone, that you knew you were starting to build tools that if I was going to build a tool, um, I wanted to make sure that Kelly could use it. And then I was also looking at the tools Kelly was building, figuring out how can I use that in Virginia? So we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Again, the, the sort of focus in public health is not necessarily innovating, doing something uh, uniquely different and novel. It's rather, here's the best practice. We were, we're watching it work in Utah. We know it's going to be useful in, in Virginia. How do I just implement it over there? So that was, you know, my role throughout my time in Virginia was um, watching this community build up and disseminate best practices. And I think from that community is how across many U.S. states we we're able to proliferate ideas really quickly. Uh, because then so from tell me, yeah. how does the FDA fit into all of this? Because you've got CDC and then you have the FDA who do sequencing. And I think the USDA do a bit of sequencing as well. So how, how does that all fit together? The FDA has a program called Genome Tracker where there it's more the um, I guess you would probably categorize it as the one health perspective, whereas, you know, they, there is clinical samples as well, but there's also like agricultural sequencing, food sample sequencing, uh, and all the like. So that's genome tracker, where it's general surveillance of uh, foodborne pathogens. And that was actually, I think, some of the, I don't know if it was the main funding, but that was a lot of the funding too in, the, in, in Virginia of how sequencing started. And obviously there's a lot of overlap with that and things like PulseNet and the focus on foodborne pathogens. Um, but that was always my interaction with FDA and sequencing efforts. And, and from that, there stems a lot of different uh, initiatives in terms of like AMR surveillance in agricultural settings. That's obviously a huge uh, priority for the FDA. Whereas I always saw PulseNet and foodborne pathogens from like EDLB, Interactive Disease Laboratory Branch, of more on the, the clinical um, outbreak investigation side of things, of like when things are happening on there. So complementary efforts for sure, but, but, but somewhat distinct in, in their insight, but that all that to say FDA was also one of the first programs at the federal level to implement sequencing um, uh, for pathogen genomic surveillance. I know here in the UK, um, it's complicated as well uh, because yeah. the UK is uh, four nations when it comes to uh, public health. So you've got a uh, Scotland, England, Wales, and Northern Ireland and yeah so it's a, de a devolved power so it's like states you know like th there's some powers and then there's some federal powers so um it means that everyone does it differently yeah. and also yeah. england is is a very large population so they are kind of the heavyweights in, in the corner Um, so wales is very good they have like a super integrated system for doing public health uh, bioinformatics and surveillance and it's all really well connected. We have a national health service here. So, you know, everyone has a number and everything is connected. They, you know, all the data is uh, is all joined up. Um, and in Scotland, you know, similarly as well, they do, they work very closely at academia as well. And uh, they've joint appointments similar to Wales. And they do things very closely as well. Then England, you know, it, I guess that more people, more funding. They do things slightly differently. Um, and I guess it's, not as joined up, but they do have aspirations for joining it up a lot more. Um, 
and then Northern Ireland is, I guess, a little bit out there slightly because small population, one half million people. And so they don't necessarily have the full resources to, you know, to do everything themselves. Um, so, you know, some stuff gets outsourced uh, to the UK or jointly with the Republic of Ireland. So slightly different uh, ways of doing things. Um, but one thing that uh, they have in common with the uh, United States is that the openness in sharing data and yeah. getting data out there, like particularly raw sequence data now, not the uh, like the metadata. Obviously, there's obviously procedures to go through to get all of that. But, you know, in terms of sequencing data, at least getting it out there. So if you're actually to look at, a, say, the SRA or, or whatever, you'll see that Colondale in London is just this hot spot of disease. And that's because everything is just coded. To, the Public Health England does, or UKHSA does, is coded to, you know, their main lab rather uh, than anything else, you know. So you have to go to them and ask them for, for the data and have a legit excuse. But, you know, that's a good thing. But a lot of countries don't share data or yeah. they will only release information uh, or release samples when they publish and they don't publish everything. So, which is quite worrying, you know, because a lot of taxpayers' money in other countries is going to producing sequencing data. It's all been kind of hidden away within their state or within the country itself, not even necessarily shared, say, say if you take Europe as an example, they're not even shared at a European level, um, which is less than ideal. Yeah. I know there's different laws in different countries, but surely a a cultural isolate, you know, that gets sequenced should be shared publicly. Yeah. I mean, it's not, there's no human in there. There's no, if you don't release any other data, you know, it should be straightforward enough. Other countries like the US and UK can do it. Um, so why not? And actually, if you then go and look at the the volume of data going out, like, what is it, Salmonella? There's three or 400,000 Salmonella um, isolates out there, uh, publicly sequenced. Virtually all of them seem to come from uh, the US, to be honest. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, obviously UK does a fair work as well. But then other countries, you know, it's it's pittance. For a long time, actually, during the pandemic, um, Denmark had sequenced and publicly released more uh, genomes than all other EU member states combined. Like, you know, it's not a big country either. You know, a yeah. small little yeah. country, more than all the rest combined. And that's because they had gotten their act together, you know, to change legislation or, you know, or interpret rules differently to release data. And that, that's my pet peeve. Sorry. No, I got there's two things, two thoughts that come to mind whenever you were saying that. One, I, I guess sometimes I don't, because I was, uh, I came up, came into the world in this, this uh, practice of sharing data, I don't, sometimes maybe highlight the credit deserved to uh, PulseNet and even Genome Tracker in the U.S. where it was always a part of the, the funding. If like, if you're going to sequence something, you have to get this up uh, into NCBI or SRA um, or, or GenBank in some cases. So it was always a part of the practice of, and even further so, um, like in PulseNet, they, they had mechanisms for data sharing. They tried to make it as easy as possible because that could be often the barrier is how do you interact with the NCBI interface to deposit to the right database, make sure metadata is, is categorized in exactly the right way from biosamples, from SRA IDs and all the like that, that can often be a bit intimidating. On PulseNet, they made it easy. They even integrated it into the software, uh, I think in Bionumerics, where you can take your data from base space, you have your sample sheets and metadata already, and from a couple of click buttons away, you made it 
uh, for, for they made it easy for laboratories to share the data. So hats off, as I said to the PulseNet folks, for that prudent planning. Uh, it's something that, again, I only realized the value, like, the, the, the uniqueness in learning more about how other laboratories are, are, are approaching this across different jurisdictions. Yeah, I mean, like in Europe, um, when I say Europe, I mean the European Union, um, yes. of which I'm a citizen, you know, I am I am a citizen of the country, I'm of the state, or not state, of the organization I'm criticizing. Um, <laughs> but like the, the courts only recently decided that like, say, a pseudonymous identifier that you have in a sample yeah. can actually, is not private data you know it can actually be publicly released and that's a big thing because people are saying oh no the sample id that could get back to a person or it could get back to a factory so you cannot release it but yeah. now they've actually clarified yeah. no you can and so that releases you know, one more hurdle to hopefully get a get a little bit further down um the the food chain but then the complexities of um of law in different countries in europe um each country or each state has its own uh, set of national laws. And then you have uh, overall Europe has different levels of laws effectively. You know, some are just gentle, no general direction. Some are, yeah. you know, we'd like you to do this. But if you don't, eh, you know, we're not too bothered. And then others are, you must do this now or we'll find you um, and change your national laws. And so, you know, it, it's very complex and it's slow moving yeah. because you have so many different countries, 27 different countries potentially having to change your laws, you know, and um, for stuff. So it it moves at its own pace and that can slow things down. And people interpret laws differently, particularly yeah. around data release and openness. This has led to a huge amount of investment um, in systems within Europe to, I guess, release what they can, but try and, you know, not give too much or, have, yeah. you know, to allow checks and balances or to, change it so that they can share data with some people but not other people you, you know it's, it's more restrictive and actually to be honest if they use all that money to do something else it'd be a lot better because they could just release all the data publicly and it would have no difference uh, well actually it would have a positive benefit you know um and it, it just pains me to think about all that data you know probably hundreds of thousands of samples sitting there or millions of samples sitting there in countries not being released and they you know they could be the key to solve an outbreak or mm. To spot the you know the next big thing or a lot you know a lot of outbreaks aren't necessarily you know this big bang you know it, it infects fifty people and you know in in a week you know they could be the slow running ticking over and you know causing issues uh, you know as time goes on um I think oh I think it was uh, maybe Netherlands <clears throat> you know before they put in genome sequencing they had the basis of no listeria outbreaks whatsoever it was they had, you know they have a few hundred listeria cases a year zero could be linked together you know or or solved but then they brought in genome sequencing and then suddenly they started seeing oh this is the, yeah. you know these are all linked yeah. together and these are common sources and they could actually start putting the puzzle together and it's that power but when you have it all the data out there publicly available cross-border you know uh, availability that really means that you you know you can drill down into that. How do you remember that um the well traveled salad? I feel like it's brought up uh, at most slide uh, decks. Yeah, I love seeing that at food uh, foodborne conferences. Yeah, exactly. You know, you could have like uh, your standard salad could have ingredients from ten different countries in it. Yeah, and you know, you try working out which one caused the issue, 
you know, it, it's hard. Source attribution is very hard. And that being a big part of it is data sharing. One thing I wanted to get back to that it, maybe this is specific to the UK. You talked about, okay, there's the different country jurisdictions, but then on the sequencing and the bioinformatics side, are those centralized by the countries themselves or is it distributed beyond that to localities in the way that I'm kind of describing the US where it gets distributed across, you know, 50 different states. And then there's even localities beyond that at the local level. In the smaller countries, it's more centralized. In the say in, in England, it's very decentralized. Um and then even still, even further still, like if it's kind of researchy, then it goes into university or research institute. So it it basically depends. And it's basically yeah. down to the size of the, the data involved. Is there a staff B? analog across UK where it's like, all right, we're the public health people who are all communicating with one another, trying to figure out the best practices. Like as countries of the UK, we have very unique challenges and we all kind of want to be on the same page of, of implementation. That might be, but um, the closest thing I can think of would be the Arctic Network, which is a charity funded mm, yeah. um, network of uh, different, I guess, academics and public health. Um, and that is quite interesting because it they're the guys who came up with the um the primers for yeah. uh SARS-CoV-2. But you know, the Arctic network is we you know, as shorthand we call them the Arctic primers, but actually they've done similar things for Zika and and the like. And they're you know, I came out of um the Ebola outbreaks uh, in West Africa a few years ago. So they you know that's it's a resource there that does bring together lots of different expertise and can be deployed at short notice um, with people who are super expert, academics are super expert in very particular areas. But um, there's nothing like Staff B that I know of. Um, although the funders these days in the UK, they're all about their networks, research networks. And they, they really yeah. like giving money to try and bring people together, which, you know, it, it's a reasonable thing and hopefully you can get better bang for your book. Yeah. Then the EU goes the complete opposite, where it is super over-networked and they will spend many, many years talking about it and not getting very far. <laughs> it's amazing how organic it was for Staff B to roll in just out of the necessity because we were all kind of in our own little boxes trying to figure this thing out. Um, yeah, so maybe there is room for you know any of the public health people across the UK to start that kind of consortium. And maybe there could be uh, collaborations in terms of how we've developed things in staff B and because staff B isn't only uh, now it's more than just a form of communication like there's proper projects that come out of staff B like the staff B docker builds came out of you know a couple people across staff B recognizing the utility of containers and recognizing hey you know obviously bio containers exist uh, but there's also again the difference between academic resources and public health resources and that's where the staff B docker uh, repository kind of came about. I guess I I give a shout out to Galaxy EU because mm. they uh, they're based in Freiburg in Germany and they're kind of doing something like that you know they are doing a lot of resources and training in Galaxy for the wider community. Anyway, I think we should leave it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, a topic we can continue rambling on about uh, for a while. We didn't even get to the global perspective, but we'll save that for uh, uh, you know another episode in the future.